Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Herbert Kitschold, who is a professor at Duke University and without a doubt one of the most influential contemporary scholars of political parties. We discuss his 1994 book, The Transformation of European Social Democracy. In this book, Herbert explains how a second dimension of political preferences has become politicized since the late 1960s and how this has affected party competition, but especially social democratic parties. Social democratic parties struggle to integrate the new demands of activists, especially surrounding environmental issues. This led to the formation of many new left libertarian and green parties. This transformed political environment created a fundamental dilemma for social democratic parties about how to attract new social demographic groups while not losing their core constituency. We discuss how many of the core questions raised in the book have remained fundamentally important for understanding the fate of social democratic parties even 25 years later, while the issues at the core of the social democratic ideal have become the status quo in many countries. Social democratic parties face a fundamental electoral crisis. Strategic repositioning will always come with trade-offs and is in itself unlikely to revive these parties. If you want to know more about Herbert and his research, you can visit his website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Herbert. Welcome to the podcast. Hey there. Today, we're going to talk about your 1994 book, The Transformation of European Social Democracy, in which you analyze how social structural changes of post-industrial societies have affected political competition and have led to a restructuring of the political space, and especially what this means for social democratic parties. Before we talk about the book in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation behind writing the book? Um, well, there's probably a biographical element to it. Um, I joined the socialist youth organization, the Falcons, when I was 15. It was sort of a protest to my more bourgeois conservative parents. And so I uh, became very active member of sort of the uh, social democratic subculture of my hometown of Cologne. And um, this went on until I was in my student years. And uh, I discovered that there is a um, trade-off. We will later talk, I guess, about trade-offs too. A trade-off between academic and political pursuits. Politics is a full-time job. And um, I dropped my politics. This was also after Helmut Schmidt became chancellor. And I was not all too happy with where social democracy Uh, was going. So that's that's one element. The other element is, is that my dissertation advisor, Klaus Offer, uh, asked me to, to write a thesis on nuclear uh, power uh, policy making. 
And um, you can imagine that this got the ball rolling to think about political interest mobilization, first with regard to new social movements, later, of course, ecology parties, uh, on which I wrote before I turned to social democracy. But the interaction with social democrats between these new challenges was an obvious question. And the consequences that these new challenges would raise uh, for social democracy was an, an obvious uh, uh, agenda item. And uh, so I attended to this essentially after I uh, went through a stream of publications that dealt with the early emergence of uh, ecology parties. Mm, so the one core argument in the book really is that the demand side of political competition has changed in post-industrial societies. What are the main drivers of this change? Well, the main driver of the change has to do with the occupational structure. It has to do with an expansion of what is summarily referred to, but I think not in a terribly differentiated way, is the rise of the service sector, the um, decline of manual blue-collar labor, and especially the rise of um, highly skilled, non-routine uh, professional occupations. So I think that is a, a, a main driver on the occupational side. Then the other driver that interacts with this is uh, changes in the family structure. They interact with the former one because I think a critical catalyst for the demand side changes that we see was the entry of women and the access of women, the full access of women to higher education and the access of women then also to the expanding job market, um, especially in the sociocultural uh, professions. It changed power relations in families and um, put on the agenda a whole range of issues that were really not traditional bread and butter questions of uh, political parties until then. And that contributed to a, a new profile of, of preferences. So it's an interaction between, if you will, the production side and the social reproduction side, how gender relations and families operate uh, in society. Mm -hmm. And how specifically then have these changes affected political preferences? Well, um, my argument is primarily that uh, it has opened up a second dimension of uh, uh, preferences in the sense that uh, these were, of course, dormant considerations. It made salient um, a new set of issues that on the level of preferences, not necessarily on the level of how they were bundled in political parties, uh, cross-cut cross um, distributive uh, uh, questions. These are questions I would, from today's perspective, not so much in the book, call questions of political and social governance and questions of how individual autonomy should structure social and political institutions, how individuals should be able to bring themselves in and articulate their difference and their uh, um, expressive Uh, lifestyle concerns, as well as their um, concern for collective goods that affect their um, projection of the good life um, in society. And these are all questions, 
I think in the book I uh, call them also questions of community, communitarianism. These are all questions that really were not part of the debates that uh, structured much of post-World War II uh, politics until the 1960s and 70s. 1968 was in many ways a um, movement around these questions of expression, governance, individual autonomy, more so than uh, as what it appeared at the time, uh, a revival of conventional Marxist thinking about class and property and redistribution. Then the politicization of these issues, and I think this is a main argument of the book, has led to um, a pressure on established parties to readjust their positions in order to stay electorally relevant. Can you elaborate a little more on this argument? Well, you had a generation of young activists who articulated these demands, first in protest events and social movements, but then looked for a political outlook, uh, outlet. And so they went shopping. Um, they went looking for political parties that could enter. And um, the baseline of many of these activists was that they were also interested in economic redistribution. So a natural uh, entry point, a natural catalyst for these demands became uh, the existing social democratic parties. So you had a, uh, a wave of entrance into these parties in the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s to see whether these parties could be recast, whether the dominant coalitions of these parties could be recast to accommodate uh, these interests. And that's something you see all across the Western Hemisphere. An early, uh, very visible incarnation might have been the um, Democratic Convention in the United States in 1968, where a traditionalist, um, uh, Hubert Humphrey, was nominated. But there was a giant uprising of young grassroots activists uh, against the traditional operating mode of the party. And in many different ways, we experienced this in social democratic parties across the Western Hemisphere. And eventually, as the um, size of their electorate that repre represents these interests grew, Social Democrats had to come to terms with that. And um, this was a very difficult internal struggle. And in the course of this struggle, um, depending on the institutional opportunities, many of the activists that were pursuing these claims and these these new programmatic profiles then left to do their own thing, which then created for social democrats for the, the first time really since the 1950s, that means since the decay of the then still existing communist parties, for the first time it created for the social democrats a conflict with other challenger parties that also embraced redistributive interests but plus with plus other um, agenda items that were not uh, the natural territory of social democratic parties. Why was it so difficult for social democratic parties to integrate these interests and people? Well, I think in the 1970s and 1980s, it was primarily because the... Um, 
working class, the traditional, uh, less skilled, uh, manual, clerical, core constituencies of the party uh, did not perceive these as high, high, high priority items. I think um, actually since the book was published, a number of additional issues have come up that really have deepened this potential conflict. Um, and both in terms of economic distribution, so, so the kinds of redistributive interests that um, are articulated by, the, by uh, these two different types of uh, constituencies begin to diverge, in addition to the fact that a second dimension with uh, libertarian governance interest is being asserted by the new entrants and challengers of the party establishment that um, the um, older generation uh, could not stomach. So um, that I think traditionalist versus these um, uh, new challenges, uh, second dimension conflicts, and later on, I think also um, increasingly uh, first dimension questions, but we may come back to that because that is something that is not so much articulated in the book. The crystallization point in the 1970s and 80s clearly was the question of ecology. So um, if you think of the nuclear power conflict, this was a conflict that often pitted trade unions against new social movements. And um, you may remember that in Germany, there was a Hessian prime minister, Holger Börner, who was called Betonkopf or something like it. He was part of the Beton Fraktion in the Social Democrats. So, I mean, this stylization uh, gives you sort of a sense of the kind of conflicts that were brought into uh, social democracy with the entry of these new activists. As a result, then, of course, um, left libertarian challengers, as you, you call them, um, emerged in many West European countries, whereas most typically green parties. And then once we had these kind of new parties, social Demo democrats really were in a dilemma that you describe in the book. What's exactly this dilemma of social democratic parties? Well, uh, the dilemma is, is that you cannot simply incorporate new interests without paying a cost. Uh, there is no, no free lunch. Um, once you have um, salience of the second dimension, you are facing a trade-off. If you prime this and if you take a stark position on this, you are likely to demobilize and lose uh, traditional core voters And um, the question then is, if you are a purely um, vote-motivated politician, um, what is the equilibrium point? How far can you go in uh, accommodating the new interest? When, when will you lose, up to what point will you lose fewer uh, existing core voters than adding new uh, voters by modifying your agenda? And this is sort of something that, social democratic parties had to address with trial and error. And um, they went actually different ways in this. And this is sort of the generating the variance in observable outcomes, election uh, return averages. If you uh, I, I use dec decade averages, 1970s to 1980s, uh, you find uh, quite stark contrasts among the parties. And um, I submit in the book that this has to do with the ways that different parties 
explored and acted on this new challenge. So this is the limit of any socioeconomic structuralism. We are now beginning the uh, to enter the field of political strategizing and choice. And um, they are social democratic parties actually did go in and down different trajectories. Before we discuss the strategies in, in, in more detail, maybe one um, other party family that has been increasingly relevant for studying party competition in post-industrial society that doesn't feature so much in the 94 book yet, but then of course you wrote another book just about that party family, and that's the radical right. How does the populist radical right fit into um, the framework that you just described? Well, the uh, populist radical right, I depicted in the, the 95 book was really an afterthought to the 94 book. I had to go to a conference organized by the DAAD um, in, in Minnesota in 91, where they, for the first time, this question came up, radical right. And I thought, since I was working on this social democracy book, well, this is sort of, I can present this as a mirror image. And many of the people who are just the opposite of what the new left libertarians stand for, right authoritarians, they gather in these political parties and um, with a characteristic socio-demographic profile. These are people who have been alienated from the left. Now, uh, at least once um, on uh, second dimension politics and maybe even twice um, uh, in that they also uh, opposed redistributive demands. So um, it's sort of a mirror image idea. It, now, the question how uh, radical right parties come about, um, I submitted in that second book, has a lot to do with the strategizing of the main um, uh, moderately conservative and uh, uh, progressive parties. So typically under the labels of social Democrats on the one side or Christian Democrats and conservative parties on the other, the more they converge on the economic dimension for reasons I did not go into there, but they have to do with questions of the development of the welfare state, as well as the increasing implausibility of a dramatic uh, socialist economic planning alternative. The more they converge on the economic dimension, the less high are the stakes to vote on that dimension, because even if you are a voter who wants uh, some redistribution, if a, the party of the other side wins on this dimension, you will have minimal regrets uh, because the dif distances and the differences are so small. So it loosens up, it releases people to vote on a second dimension on which they see starker differences between political parties. Or to put it in one sentence, um, the salience of a dimension and the positions of parties on a dimension are in part endogenous to the positions parties take on other dimensions. Then when we're talking about, about the strategies of social democratic parties, to me, looking back at the book, it seems very predictive of the third way strategies that then really followed in the 90s and that many social democratic parties followed in, in Western Europe and beyond. At the, against the backdrop of your book, how would you evaluate these third way strategies of social democratic parties? 
Well, first of all, I should say that um, my book never uses the notion of third way. Mm -hmm. That was invented, actually, I think a couple of years later. And um, this, this was just a time, I think, oh, no, this is about eight years before Schroeder and Blair uh, got together to um, uh, contrive their famous third uh, way uh, uh, manifesto. And Giddens spoke on this as well. Uh, I actually did not envision that social democrats would have to embrace a strategy of market liberalization if that is part of what is identified with the third way uh, strategy. I, in fact, anticipated that in order to appeal to the new uh, constituencies, um, many of the redistributive themes and demands of old social democracy, um, like state-regulated sectors, um, a generous, encompassing and redistributive uh, social welfare state, um, that would all be fine with the uh, new constituencies. The question was really to supplement it with the um, second dimension agenda. What the third way does, of course, is to rethink the position of social democrats on the governance of the economy with implications to restrain economic redistribution. So I think this is still, if you will, an add-on or a, a separate step that social democrats undertook in the second half of the 90s and after the turn of the century. And I should say in brackets, though, I'm even not sure how fair it is to describe this, the third way. And this, I think, is the conventional description of the third way, that it's a market liberalization um, a perspective of social democracy in light of the persistent defense that social democrats engaged in when it came to the welfare state, even in times of slow economic growth. Or if you look at Britain, um, under Tony Blair, the unprecedented financial extension and expansion of the welfare state. Um, this is very interesting because on the podcast already, I talked to Jane Gingrich as well as uh, Tom O'Grady, and there's really a, a very differentiated paper, a very differentiated um, explanation on how they evaluate these uh, third-way pol policies in, in terms of their outcomes. Now, if we stay in the world of um, electoral outcomes, how would you evaluate the consequences of these policies? Well, I would say we have to distinguish, once we are in a, in a, in a two-dimensional space and we have multiple parties, there are no more equilibria. And social democratic parties face multiple multiple trade-offs. And um, not in the book, but nowadays I would say they have essentially a choice between inbound parties competing for the median voter and a variety of outbound strategies to try to prevent or regain voters that are on the verge or actually have made the step to move on to more uh, uh, radical parties either parties that are more radical, primarily on the second dimension, like ecology uh, uh, parties, or on the first dimension, um, uh, new socialist parties. We saw some 
uh, of those already emerging in the 1980s, 90s, um, think of the uh, uh, Socialist Party in Holland, some even in the 1960s, then turned more green, green in the 1980s, like the left socialist parties in Scandinavia, uh, or the conversion of the uh, Communist Party in, in, in Sweden to a left libertarian party. Um, but the trades of, if the, if the Social Democrats go toward the um, ecologist as an outbound strategy, they are likely to lose uh, very much among their conventional uh, lower-skilled, blue-collar, and clerical support. Um, if they go toward the uh, a, a more conventional redistributive strategy, uh, particularly with an emphasis on protecting pensions and unemployment, which I think are the probably two most important concerns from these constituencies, um, then they are likely to uh, lose the support of their newer uh, 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 potential supporters and constituencies. They could also just leave, um, let people drift to the left, knowing that whether it's the ecological or whether it's the redistributive one, knowing that none of these new parties can form coalitions with um, parties in the political center-right and right spectrum. And they could try to move toward the center, uh, sort of become a wishy-washy centrist party with mildly um, leftist economic and um, a, a political governance uh, commitments, uh, that appeals to some voters, but it will be a great electoral uh, a sacrifice. So in the, in the book in 94, I laid out the trade-off between a vote and an office-seeking strategy. The office-seeking strategy uh, tries to capture the median voter, but it comes at great electoral costs. It, uh, it may lead to a decline of social democracy by feeding support into parties that pursue the outbound strategy that enter on the periphery both on both both dimensions. So we're now, of course, a little more than 25 years after the book came out. And the first question I want to ask you from the perspective of today is, is there something in the book where you would say, okay, I really got that. That's where I hit the nail on the head, um, I still see that very much came true or I think this very much holds still today. Well, I think the uh, fact that there is a second dimension, that the second dimension has become important. Actually, I could show you um, some regressions. Uh, Philip Rem and I recently uh, ran that shows that uh, the second dimension in the European election studies since 2009 became a progressively more important determinant of vote choice. So I think this is this is something um, that probably carries over, but that was certainly not my um, own just... I, I, they, they were, they, this was in the air and other people uh, uh, articulated this as well. And um, the second is, of course, the trade-offs. Uh, the trade-offs that social democracy is facing. And these trade-offs, I mean, in light of the additional socioeconomic problems that have exacerbated, intensified since 
the 1980s, these trade-offs have only become starker. And they ultimately led to a differentiation of the left party spectrum that in some ways negates the, or at least one, one hypothesis of my book, uh, namely that there is a way, that there are some social democratic strategies that to a large extent can preserve their status as the dominant party of the left and as a hegemonic party of the left that then can also claim to dominate executive office in the appropriate coalition. We now know that everywhere um, social democrats have shrunk and become just one player in a leftist field. So in that sense, you could almost say that um, the Subsequent development shows the limits of political choice. There's political choice, say, in an intermediate time horizon. Parties can modulate their trajectories. But in the very long run, over generations or half centuries, um, certain developments are impossible to fight. Um, Social, structural, political, economic realities assert themselves and uh, politicians cannot avoid that. I think it's very interesting that you emphasize these trade-offs because it seems to me that we are in a phase where in the last years, many people have presented these very linear, nearly monocausal explanations of the failure of social dem- democracy. And they very much are based on agency. Right? This is often something that social democrats did wrong, and this has led to their decline now. For example, they have become too neoliberal, and because of this, we now see their decline, or they're focusing too much on left libertarian urban voters, and because of this now, we see their decline. You would argue against these uh, these more linear explanations, right? Well, you have possibilities for social democrats to win and lose voters in a variety of venues. And so um, this focuses on one and on one. um, So the idea that abandoning a leftist redistributive strategy to the extent that these parties really have done that compared to their positions in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I think we really have to look uh, more closely to what extent that is really the case. this is strikes me as a not terribly promising uh, perspective. I think in order to appraise that perspective, you have to look at things like how powerful political parties have become that do express a clear, stark, leftist, redistributive political economic agenda. And I think the verdict on this, at least up to this point, is, is that Yes, there is a niche for that. This niche may be anywhere between 5 and 15%, but it's certainly not designed and likely to ever become hegemonic uh, for a left bloc. So that's one thing. Then at the more micro level, of course, you can study, and I know you have done that um, as well, you can study the actual voter flow. Where do people go that leave uh, social Democrats? Well, it's only a minority. Uh, that goes to parties that are uh, associated with leftist, further leftist economic uh, uh, policy positions. So 
it's not a terribly promising strategy to establish a uh, or reestablish the hegemony of social democracy as a party label. So now that we've talked about um, the the things that you think you you really that have um, stood the, against the test of time, what would be a thing where you think, okay, I got that completely wrong? Yeah, there are lots of things that that I just never really considered in in the book. Um, so I think what we have seen since the since the nineteen eighties. Um, is a um, much stronger articulation of the question how uh, issues and dimensions gain salience. Uh, and this is something I did not uh, pay enough attention to. Moreover, I idealized in the book that um, in terms of party competition, the two preference dimensions could essentially be collapsed by political parties. Uh, still in one main dominant dimension, running from left libertarian to right authoritarian. And while this is still a little bit the case, I think since the 1980s, the landscape has become much more complex and much more truly uh, two-dimensional, even in terms of party competition, if not three-dimensional, depending on how we think the uh, questions of immigration and citizenship play out against the agendas of the the way these dimensions were constituted in the, the 70s and 80s. So I think there's lots of work to be done on the side of articulating a proper theory of party competition, a behavioral theory of party competition that goes beyond um, a still fairly traditionalist um, view of spatial party politics. At the same time, I'm not quite ready to buy into issue ownership theories, especially if they are associated with the idea that it's a non-positional competition, um, essentially depicting, projecting uh, party positions as valence uh, that become competitive only by the different degrees of competence and um, past record that parties show in addressing a certain question. In a way, um, despite the dilemma that we just discussed, I feel the book is quite optimistic about the potentials for social democratic parties, especially in contrast to the the work by uh, Adam Swarovski and Sprague that you also discuss in the book. Um, you say there are, is the opportunity to forge new alliances, to create new coalitions, and social democratic parties can do that and can... Um, be successful still in this changing socioeconomic context conditions. However, now we have seen the strong decline of social democratic parties. Are you still optimistic that there is a new coalition that they can forge and be successful again? Uh, just about Zyborski and, and, and uh, Sprague, I very much admire the book as uh, sort of a paradigm of trying to bring together a bottom-up demand and a top-down supply perspective. My beef with them was more that they really actually, if you look at the historical periods they analyze, um, contrary to what they claim, um, there is very little trade-off. Uh, my argument is really that the trade-off comes into its own 
only with this, with, with the new second dimension. Actually, um, what they show, if anything, is, is that their trade-off coefficient is much stronger in those places where in the past you had a salient second dimension. And that was essentially the one about religion, secular religious one. So uh, they themselves, um, I think, um, make this contingent on a, on a, on a second uh, dimension. So as long as we are dealing with the dominant economic dimension, it's not that obvious that social democrats face a, um, a, a, a trade-off. Now, with regard to the present, uh, I'm not terribly optimistic that social democrats can resolve this trade-off by asserting a new hegemony as a label. I'm optimistic in a different sense. I'm optimistic in the sense that many of these social democratic concerns, the ideas of social democracy that have to do with um, a baseline of social equality and a baseline of respect and uh, autonomy and reciprocity among all citizens, that this has to be socioeconomically guaranteed, that they are pervading the political sphere in a way that a number of other parties have embraced it. In many ways, social democracy has become a victim of its own success. And it is not by accident that social democratic parties have often declined the most in the places where they have become over the decades most successful in implementing their ideas in a, a welfare state institutions. So if you look at the very moment, the most successful social democratic parties are at, in the European periphery, in Portugal, and in some ways in Spain. And uh, Portugal for sure is not a, uh, a trailblazer of a contemporary knowledge society and advanced welfare state. So I think social democracy are a ladder, I'm using here a metaphor from Wittgenstein's Tractatus, uh, one of the last sentences, it's a ladder on which People climb up and then they throw it away. <laughs> um, there is, of course, another um, narrative around at the moment that we haven't talked about so much yet. And that really is the idea of reviving social democracy with more authoritarian positions on the second dimension and especially more restrictive positions on immigration sometimes labeled the Danish strategy, I guess. And it seems to me very prominent um, among social Democrats also themselves when you talk to social democratic politicians. What is your take on this strategy? Well, it's another trade-off option. You go down that route, you may at the margin gain some borders back you lost in the past, but I'm skeptical that it will be a lot. Uh, I think once once people are gone, many of them will not return. Um, but it may be a justifiable strategy if those few people you want to gain at the margin will happen to include the median voter or the median voter puddle in a, um, a democracy such that no government can be formed against you. And that you, with other leftist parties, either as a minority government or as a coalition, can then dominate policymaking. 
but this will come at a cost. Social Democrats will not, as a party, not win votes from that, but they um, will only increase their bargaining leverage. So I have not looked at the results in, in, in Denmark, but um, if my recollection serves me well, the Social Democrats in Denmark lost votes in the most recent election, but they gained bargaining power because no government can be formed against them. Mm -hmm. That's true. In other countries, so do you think in the long run, Social Democrats with that strategy would then still be the leading party in that left coalition, though? Uh, I don't think so. I think that the terrible choice for social democracy is in a way um, a collective action problem. Um, either they individually maximize their vote and then they compete mostly against uh, parties on their economic and their political governance left, but that will shrink the left block and it will deliver the collective bad of not having access to the median voter puddle. Uh, there's no single median voter in a two-dimensional space and um, probably entrench uh, center-right, sometimes in alliance with far-right, Uh, governments. On the other hand, if they, with clenched teeth, compete for this middle morass, this middle model, they are de destined to lose votes. This is not going to be pleasant. And I think we see this in the performance of uh, the uh, German Social Democrats, the, the Austrians, many other parties, that um, it's unpleasant. Um, but there may be politicians who feel that with clenched teeth, delivering the collective good is, is the right thing, uh, the, the collective good for the left bloc. Mm. Is there a similar dilemma for the mainstream right? Can we think of these same problems and the inbound and outbound strategies that we just discussed for social democrats, also for um, mainstream right, conservative or Christian democratic parties? Uh, yes, I would say that that is the case. Um, I find it strange that to this very day, there hasn't been really a, a counterpart, a counterweight to all this concern and studies about the center-left by studying the erosion and decline of the center-right. The decline of the center-right has been at least as prominent as that of the center-left. Just think of what happened to Christian democratic parties around the world. Uh, the, the German Christian Democratic Party uh, was the sole uh, leftover holdout on the center-right of still claiming hegemony Uh, for the uh, uh, right-wing uh, bloc. Just consider to, what, what happened to the, the Dutch, the Belgians, for a while also the Austrians. And uh, so you see, I think, a similar trade-off uh, on the, uh, the right as well. Mm -hmm. And how can we describe that in terms of socio-structural trade-offs? I guess there's an, a, a traditional coalition of more business-minded, um, upper-middle-class voters, and then there is the, the challenger of the radical right, especially for the petit bourgeoisie and the working class. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, on the right, um, as center-right parties ally with radical-right parties, 
they are in danger of losing a lot of their Bildungsbürgertum, established, um, economically conservative, but um, in terms of political governance, civil liberties and so on, uh, center or a center libertarian voters, they will get cold feet to buy into this agenda, um, particularly when it comes to restrictions of uh, immigration and counteracting multiculturalism, but also many other uh, cultural restrictions that may come with a, uh, a more forthcoming radical right strategy. I think the United States, of course, is the uh, exhibit A when it comes to that. Uh, there we don't have a coalition uh, with a radical right party, but really more a capture of the uh, conventional center-right party by radical right forces. And uh, that makes many of this Bildungsbürgertum stratum uh, defect from the party. We already talked about this now a little bit, um, and I think there's a good bridge to it. You, in, in a newer research project now, uh, you very often use a simplified way of really describing the socio-structural base for these transformations. And this, this is a simplified way of looking at it is really having one dimension that is income and another one that is education. How does this allow us to understand politics in the post-industrial societies and the knowledge economy? Well, let me first correct you. Income and education are not the dimensions. Uh, these are predictors of dimensions. Um, and it's, we have to look especially at the interaction. But let me first give you the motivation for this. Um, in order to do long-term studies of political realignment, we need three types of information. We need fine-grained sociodemographic information, especially if you want to track occupations. And um, in, already in the 94 book, together with many others, uh, like especially Daniel Oerschs and Hans-Peter Kriese's work, I left, or I thought that traditional notions of class, sociological notions of class, are not sufficient to characterize um, the socioeconomic class structure that is required to um, distinguish preference profiles. So we need sociodemographic variables. We need policy preferences of people, and we need vote choice. These three things found together in surveys really exists only since the late 1990s. So uh, my co-author Philip Rem and I were fishing for a simplification that would allow us to develop with some ease much longer time series that still, at least in an indirect way, track social, economic transformations related to these more fine-grained categories of occupation, and also, by the way, gender. And we ultimately decided that income and education and the interaction between the two can give us some of that in the following sense. So income is a predictor in the traditional Meltzer-Richard way of where people stand on distribution and redistribution. Education actually predicts positions on both dimensions. Uh, if you have high education, you are against redistribution, but you are certainly for libertarian uh, political governance. And so if you put these two together, 
um, these are crude variables available, if you look at a recent paper of Philip and mine, in over 500 surveys uh, going back to the 1960s, uh, you come up with a typification of, of four groups and you can make it more fine-grained. We have actually experimented with nine, but uh, you run then into the problem of um, losing degrees of freedom and also only marginal further returns um, in analytical insight. So you have low education, low income. These are mostly blue-collar workers, but not entirely. Um, there is a low-skilled personal service and clerical uh, contingent there, and also a small business contingent. Then you have uh, low education, high income. Um, this is a declining group, just like the previous one. Declining always keeping the definition of low and high constant over many decades. This is a declining group that used to consist of skilled workers, particularly in small companies, and uh, much of traditional small business, so petty bourgeois uh, uh, people. Um, they are not redistributive, and they're also traditional authoritarian, whereas the former group, low education, low income, are redistributive, but traditional authoritarian. But then you have a group that did not exist 50 years ago, um, or shows up in surveys only with something like 2 to 4%. This is high education, low income people. And this group has now, depending on the country and the survey you look at, grown to between 15 and 25% of the population. And the strongest plurality in this group are sociocultural professionals. Another important characteristic of this group is, is that women are somewhat overrepresented in this group. And um, so this actually is, in our simplified terms, the most important constituency for left libertarian political appeals. Then you have a fourth group. These are high education, high income people. This is essentially the uh, business, finance, tech professionals with um, market-oriented economics and libertarian governance concerns. These are the people who are likely to defect from uh, con moderate conservative parties if they drift toward uh, the radical right. And um, so, but the argument of this work is, is essentially that the old core groups, uh, the um, low income, low education on the left side, and the high education, high income on the right side, now have become swing groups, whereas the anchors of the two blocks have become... Uh, high education, low income people on the left side, they are libertarian and redistributive, and low education, high income people on the right side. Uh, one interesting um, insight that this generates is that it is wrong, I believe, to say that the working class is the core of the radical right. The working class may be overrepresented in the radical right, but the group that is most strongly represented in the radical right are actually um, relatively high earning uh, people with low skills who see down the line, who face this problem of status decline, both in economic as well as in more cultural uh, status sense, who are yearning for the return of a society that um, belongs to a bygone era, these are the types who want to make America great again. And um, I think uh, we find equivalence to that also in European democracies.
you pointed at now, and that, that would have been my question, I guess this is a very good frame to understand the current or the transformation of US politics really in the last 30, 40, maybe 50 years, right? Well, in the United, it started actually with the United States because the American national election studies <coughs> allowed us to implement this starting with 1952. This is clearly the longest um, time series we have. As you uh, probably know, we implemented this in this uh, broad um, 18 country uh, comparison. And um, you find the same kinds of transformations in most of them, except quite tellingly in a few Mediterranean democracies that in terms of their transition to a knowledge society and in terms of the efforts that politicians have made to bring this about, for example, in terms of expanding higher education and uh, research and development and, 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 uh, are lagging behind the rest of Europe and the United States. We're already slowly coming to an end of the podcast. There's one question I wanted to ask you because we're recording this during the um, a global pandemic that is really going to change um, a lot of our politics. And I wanted wanted to um, ask you for an evaluation of potential new coalitions. If we look at what's happening politically at the moment, in Germany, for example, we see these weird protest coalitions of a more esoteric uh, group together with uh, right-wing extremists. It also seems to me that um, people who support lockdowns at the moment are much more the educated left than, than other groups. Although from when I look at these, these policies, shouldn't we evaluate them as a more law and order with a with a uh, more authoritarian tendency. So do you see that electoral coalitions at the moment are potentially changing um, faced with this global pandemic? Well, listen, I don't have any answer to this question. My, I'm reading it in the tea leaves just as you do. In many ways, um, I think that the question of a lockdown or not will be mapped on the main line of the um, existing divide with uh, left libertarians opting for lockdown, even though on the face of it, this is a authoritarian regulation and restriction of um, um, individual choice. Uh, whereas the uh, position to open up and return to free market transactions is going to be typified and uh, projected on the right. I think that also is reflecting of the winners and losers in occupational terms. Um, highly educated people. Well, I, I, I read someone saying that we have the increase in inequality in society now in the coming 18 months that under other circumstances would happen in 10 years. The winners of this process are mostly professionals, are people who can work from home Uh, there's already a group of economists at the University of Chicago who have come up with a measure of the percent of people who can work at home without um, infringing their earnings capacity um, by country, by state, even by metropolitan area. So the highest in, the, in Europe is Sweden with 58% working from home without problem. The lowest is Greece with 42%. 
I just discovered going through this uh, reading that my area here in North Carolina, the research triangle, is the third highest in the United States, also with roughly 58 to 60 percent of people who can work from home. So I think this is a division that will actually articulate divides also within the left um, a, along those lines and make it more likely that um, less skilled uh, people uh, move off to the uh, uh, move off to the radical right. Uh, by the way, um, also just this week, again, just freely associating here, I saw a psychology paper that looks at um, the question whether a concern with purity and cleanliness, something that typically personality theory uh, associates with the right, is always associated with the right, or that depends on the issues. And they found that when it comes to uh, medical questions, uh, that actually if you prime purity, that this appeals more to libertarians. So um, the question whether regulation is something that libertarians want or not is actually quite complicated. I could give you a historical example that is now um, no longer relevant, and that is that left libertarians were always against private television. So um, they were against choice, against the opening up of uh, a competition and a, uh, a, a wider range of opinions by having a private television. And so one could say, well, there they opted for more regulation. So I think it depends very much on uh, the question. And I should say in brackets, we tell, it wasn't just a question of uh, uh, property rights and property structures that there would be private companies making a profit. I think it had more to do with who governs and who controls what can become part of the public discourse. And I think in a similar vein, now the question of purity and cleanliness and fighting the pandemic is not easily constructed in the way as something uh, where the restrictive position is on the right and the um, uh, free-flowing position is on the left. It could be actually quite the reverse. There's a final question I always ask everyone in the podcast, and that is for reading recommendations. And it would be for a political science uh, work and one that is not political science and maybe even a work of fiction. What would be your recommendations? On the political science side, I would like to nominate a book which I greatly admire, but which I think has not received the resonance it deserves. And this is uh, Carlos Bosch's 2015 book, Political Order and Inequality, Their Foundations and Their Consequences for Human Welfare. Um, this book is not only a, a technical achievement in tracking the evolution of social and political institutions over 10,000 years, the uh, long durée, at the same time generating a modicum of causal leverage in the estimates he provides. I think this is just on a technical level, in its broad reach, it's, it's really impressive. Um, substantively and theoretically, I think it's also a provocation because it questions our by now commonsensical and baseline belief that what matters in politics is mostly uh, institutions, and that institutions really shape 
political strategies. And um, Bosch is someone who advances the idea, well, wait a minute. Technology is exogenous, ecological conditions are exogenous, and they have a huge power in shaping uh, political institutions and strategies. Maybe to recommend this book in a time of pandemic is um, a particularly uh, appropriate. So that, that would be my uh, political science suggestion. On the non-political science suggestion, actually, I, I, I would like to make two two, two um, uh, uh, entries here. The first one is, is not really a piece of fiction, if that implies a, a novel, uh, but a poet. Um, and it is a, I uh, revisited this because a few weeks ago, a friend of mine asked me to join an online uh, poetry network to um, find a, contributions that resonate with the time we are in. And um, as I have in the past, in dark times, I find solace in reading poems by a, an Austrian poet uh, who died uh, early at age 27 um, and who wrote around the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th century, Georg Trakl. Um, he, he came from a bourgeois family and he in his poems, I think, captured the anguish of a decaying society. And um, it's a, a protest against the conditions of humankind. And living in the United States, I'm currently, I'm, th this strikes me often as a particularly appropriate uh, mood and uh, sense um, that prompts reflection on what we are going through, uh, not just under COVID, uh, but um, a progressive, or I should say regressive, uh, socioeconomic development uh, that uh, really recently comes to a head. In Georg Trakl's case, of course, it came to a head in World War I that tragically contributed to the end of his life. Um, but the other suggestion I would like to make is a book that many of you might have read, um, or the pre predecessor of it, uh, is by Yuval Harari. It's a Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, 2017. And um, so this is sort of nonfiction. He is a historian, but it's really more, a, I treat it more as a philosophical reflection on history. And I think it's particularly appropriate for political scientists to read because it gives me at least, a sense of how fleeting the moments are that we are capturing with our studies. And um, I think it may even put into place and into perspective the modes of uh, political preference articulation that we are so much concerned with, the vote, the aggregation to political parties, this is a form of communicating information, of preferences, of aggregating them that hasn't existed for long. And that in light of the changes that are coming about and the long run changes that he discusses, uh, maybe just a fleeting moment. Even Tariq, in your own career, whether you will still in 40 years write about political parties and um, elections, I'm not sure. There may be other forms of in an information society 
what I think Harari calls it techno-humanism. Um, there will be other forms of communication. We may not even know whether humans will be considered in the same way as autonomous decision makers, as is the fiction in much of our current political science thinking about strategic interaction and choice. Um, we may be in a stream of change that will put these old-fashioned modes, the vote, the party, into a perspective as just a transitional form to something quite different. And we might, in fact, start thinking about other ways to articulate and promote and aggregate a political interest. And this means not just a relapse in crude authoritarianism. I think that's not the perspective either. There's not simply a return of the iron fist that is inappropriate in a knowledge society and in an environment of techno-humanism. There is a contradiction between the means of production and the relations of production, if you use here the Marxist uh, language. Um, but can we imagine these new forms of social and political organization that um, are combined with and that will be generated by or facilitated by the momentous uh, technological uh, changes that we are already visiting and witnessing um, at this very point in time. So think over the, beyond the uh, horizon of the next five or 10 years, speculate about long run new vehicles of political uh, mobilization and decision making. Herbert, thank you so much. I uh, thank you really for the conversation. I certainly learned a lot in the last hour. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation.